There's a story. It's not in the Bible, but it uses the biblical characters and it tells a spiritual truth. And in this story, Jesus is walking along with his apostles. And he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, I would like you to pick up and carry a stone for me. And so Peter looks down and finds an easy-to-carry stone, picks it up, and puts it in his pocket. A few hours later, it comes to lunchtime, and Jesus asks Peter, do you still have that stone? And so Peter takes it out of his pocket and gives it to Jesus. Jesus turns it into a piece of bread and gives it back to Peter, and Peter eats it. And then Jesus looks at Peter again and says, Peter, I'd like you to carry another stone for me. And so Peter, thinking ahead to dinner time, picks up a much larger stone and puts it on his back and carries it. A few hours later, it comes to be about dinner time, and Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you still have that stone? And Peter pulls out the large stone, and Jesus takes it and throws it into a lake. And he looks on, surprised and a little disappointed. And then Jesus asks him, Were you carrying the stone for you, or were you carrying the stone for me? What the story does is that it forces you to reflect upon what, what does obedience look like? Because in a certain sense, Peter was obedient. He had done exactly what Jesus had told him. But Jesus is trying to get a little bit under the hood to ask that question, what is the nature of obedience? And I got to thinking about this because I was studying all the passages in the Bible related to anger. And I got to Luke chapter 15, verse 28. And it says, The older son became angry and refused to go in. Now, if you know the background, this is a reference to the elder son in the story of the prodigal son. And he's angry. And I, I looked at this. After studying all these passages of anger, I just kind of looked at it and I was like, Huh. Like, I knew that he was angry, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized how messed up that actually was. The thing that angers him was forgiveness. And then, after studying all these passages, there was another story that I had never made the connection to, in which there was somebody who is angry over forgiveness. The story of Jonah. It's a very similar case. And the more I thought about it, the more that I, I realized how much The anger of the elder brother explains the problems that the Pharisees had, the mentality that was going wrong. And the more I realized how strange this story is. In the story of the prodigal son, you have two sons who both misconstrue the relationship with their father. And it takes the father's unexpected forgiveness to expose that there's a problem. The prodigal's problem is his unrighteousness. That's what gets in the way. But the elder son's problem is his righteousness. And so the main question you're looking at this is like, how is the relationship to be understood such that real forgiveness is actually possible? And I think the way to understand that is you have to ask the question, what is, what is the source? What is the source of the, the right nature of obedience? I'm going to focus in on the part where the elder son comes in, but before we do that, let's take a look at the the story of the the prodigal son to bring you up to speed. So it starts off in verse 11. And there Jesus says, then Jesus said, a man had two sons. It's important to understand that it's a story not about one son, not the story of the prodigal son, it's a story of two sons. And there's a contrast that's going to be developed. Now, the, the younger son 
does something awful and he asks for the inheritance. If you look in the Old Testament, you find this is not how it's supposed to go. The father is supposed to start the conversation, not the son. And if you look at the things about that culture, this would likely have been considered to be very offensive. In verse 12, he says, Luke 15, verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that will belong to me. And so he divided his assets between them. This would have been a shock in that culture and might have made the son a pariah in the culture, which may explain the next verse when he says he leaves, verse 13. After a few days, the younger son gathered together all he had and left on a journey to a distant country. And there, he squandered his wealth with a wild lifestyle. Now, then he runs into a problem. And it's that a famine occurs, verse 14. Then after he had spent everything, a severe famine took place in that country, and he began to be in need. And when this famine occurs, he is forced to work for a man who turns out to be a harsh man who treats the son no better than a slave. Verse 15. And so he went and worked for one of the citizens of the country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to eat the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And so you have this son who starts off as a son, and he now ends as a slave. But then he comes to his senses, verse 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have food enough to spare? But I am here dying from hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, and he says three things he plans to say. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired workers. Look what he says in the second thing. He says... I'm no longer worthy to be your son. He thinks that his relationship is based upon his worth. And then it begs the question, when he says he's going to come work, is he thinking he's going to somehow work it off? And so the prodigal has misconstrued his relationship with his father. But it turns out the elder son has the same problem. And so he comes to him, and now you start to see that the the relationship was different than he had thought. Verse 20. And so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way from home, his father saw him, and his heart went out to him. He ran and hugged his son and kissed him. And then his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, Hurry, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. So the son comes back. All he's asking is to be a hired servant. But the father gives him more than that. He makes him back into a son. And so you come up to this story and it ends up to this point with joy, with celebration. So one of the fruit of the Spirit. But the elder brother does not have that joy. I'm going to pick up the story in verse 25. But before we do that, I want to go back and look at some things at the beginning of Luke 15 that I think tells you a hint of what the problem is. Now this tells you the background behind why Jesus was telling this story. In Luke 15 verse 1, he says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear him. Think about how Jesus' message landed on all the wrong people in a certain sense. 
It's kind of strange that Jesus' message doesn't just res- resonate with button-down religious people. And in fact, in this case, there's a contrast between them. It actually resonates with the outcast. I- I've, I've had some fun with this with my coworkers because I-, I try to get them to read the gospel. And I'll tell them, you know, one of the reasons you should read it is because it includes Jesus poking a bunch of religious people in the eye. And they look at me kind of funny because they're like, I thought you were religious. I'm like, that's what makes it funny. Verse 2, the Pharisee, but the Pharisees and experts in the law were complaining. Grumbling is not one of the fruit of the Spirit. But this gives you a little bit of a hint of the problem here. Continuing in verse 2, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The funny thing is about it is that the very thing that attracted the sinners is the very thing that repulses the Pharisees. And then this is the trigger for the parables. Verse 3, so Jesus told them this parable. So this is what, what starts it. Now, when you get to the story of the prodigal son, you realize that Jesus has cast the people from the situation into the story. So the prodigal son, the prodigal son represents the sinners. And Jesus never says they didn't sin. This is a, this is a story of them repenting. The father in the story eventually becomes Jesus because the father in the story is criticized for banqueting the sinner. But that's exactly what Jesus is getting criticism for. And remember, it's his story, verse 11 says, a man had two sons. And so the elder son winds up being the grumbling Pharisees. Okay, so going back, let's go up to verse 25. And this is where we're going to pick up the part about the elder son. Verse 25. Now his elder son was in the field. Stop right there. The elder son is out there working. This gives you a sense of the problem here because the elder son thinks I'm the good son. Like I've been doing all this stuff while your younger son was out there cavorting. I was out there in the field. And it turns out it's going to be his, the elder brother's righteousness that breaks his relationship with his father. Continuing on in verse 25. As he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. So he sees the joy that's happening, and that's what angers him. Verse 26, so he called to one of the slaves and asked what was happening. The slave replied, your brother has returned. Your father has killed the fattest calf because he got his son back safe and sound. But the older son became angry, and he refused to go in. So the older son, you see what's happening here. The older son is angered by the forgiveness and he refuses to enter into the joy of his father. As it goes on, though, it turns out that the father is going to pursue not just the prodigal at the edge of town, he's going to pursue his older son, too. So he, he refused to go in, and at the second half of verse 28, he says, his father came out and appealed to him. So if you look at this story, remember there's, there's actually three stories that Jesus tells about lost things. In the first two, the lost sheep and the lost coin, he talks about how the lost sheep and coin were pursued. Something, somebody went out to go find them. There's a tendency to think that this, the parable of the lost son, or lost sons, perhaps is maybe a good way to put it, is somehow different than that. And I'm not sort of convinced of that. I think that maybe the point was that the, the father had pursued the prodigal when he went out to him at the edge of town and brought him in. And I think if that's true, this may be him pursuing the elder son to bring him back. The problem is that the elder son doesn't think he needs to be pursued at all. 
Verse 29. But he answers his father, Look, these many years, I have worked like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your commands. The father will not correct him on this. He doesn't say you're actually, he doesn't say he's wrong on this, per se. Reminds me of the, the story in, of Simon and the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7. Because that story only works when he, t- he talks about the parable of the people who've been, once been forgiven a lot and one has been forgiven a little. That story only works if one actually did need to be forgiven of more than the other. So there actually is a case where some have actually done more wrong than others. The problem is, is that that is causing the elder son to not recognize that he actually has a problem too. He is losing his relationship with his father not because of his righteousness, but actually because of it, or at least his sense of it. He's losing his relationship not because of his wrongdoing, but it's his righteousness that separates him from his father's joy. And then in the latter passage, verse 29, he tells you a little bit more about what's going on here. After telling him that, look, these many years I've worked for like a slave for you, I've never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. Think about the underlying assumption here. The assumption is, I deserve your love more than him. So the question you have to think about at this point is how does the fact that he thinks that the the love is more deserved, why does that cause him to be less forgiving? And the problem is, is that forgiveness by its very definition can never be deserved. The deserved forgiveness doesn't exist. That's a contradiction in terms. So if you think that it is deserved, that idea is corrosive to the very idea of forgiveness. Now, there's something that I I suspect may be an exaggeration on the elder son's part that happens in verse 30. He says, but when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. You might think, well, how does he know this? Well, he just found out that his, his son came back. How does he know? But what if he doesn't know? And he's actually exaggerating it. One of the things you notice about self-righteous people is that they have a tendency to exaggerate the problems in other people. So if you think that you have to deserve your father's love, if there's a sense of competition there, there's two ways that people approach that. One, you bring yourself up. And two, you push other people down. Right? You see that three chapters later, Luke chapter 18, where there's the story of the self-righteous Pharisee who's praying in the temple. And he says, glad I'm not like that guy. Okay, that's pushing them down. And then he says, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything. So that's him building himself up. Sounds a lot like the elder son. The thing is, is that when you realize that you do not have to compete for his love, that's the only way that you can think in which you can ever love anybody else. Because if you meet somebody and they're better at something than you and you want to be good at it like they, that's fine. You take joy in the fact they're better than that because we're on the same team. It's not that big of a deal. We're both equally as loved. 
And then the father corrects him, and his correction focuses on the relationship aspect, verse 31. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me, and everything that belongs to me is yours. And he says, you are always there with me. Right? The real joy was in the relationship, and that was something the son had misconstrued, something he had lost sight of. And so it's a spirit of sonship, not a spirit of slavery. The prodigal thought he had to earn back his father's love. And the elder son thought he already had. But in the end, in verse 32, it is the prodigal who is reconciled. It was appropriate to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He is lost and is found. Now at this point, you're listening to the story and you're thinking, okay, what will happen? Will the sons be reconciled to each other? Will the elder son be reconciled with the father? And it is right then, the story just ends. And it just leaves it lingering, dangling. But that was another thing that reminds me of the story of Jonah. Because in Jonah, in both cases, you have undeserved forgiveness. Forgiveness is never deserved. In both cases, you have that forgiveness leads to anger in the one who thinks he is righteous. And both of the stories end just leaving you hanging, wondering what the ending is like. This story is a story of two sons who have a problem. One of them will end with a new awareness of his father's love, and the other one will still think of his father as a taskmaster. And the funny thing is, is that the elder son appears on the surface to be doing everything right, but his obedience is warped in some way. He, the father says, you were always near to me, which is true, physically, but his heart was as far as, as when the prodigal was in the distant country. I can tell you that Luke 15 is true. Personally, I can tell you that it's true in the sense that unexpected forgiveness can oftentimes reveal people's heart. I have somebody in my family who's a prodigal. And when she tried to come back, there were people who, you know, I kind of thought they were, you know, the buttoned up religious people. And so maybe they would act like the elder son, but they accepted her back with open arms. And there were other people who I thought knew better, and they treated her with contempt. And the way that I realized who was right and who was wrong was not just by looking at it at the surface. It took a prodigal to realize what was going on there. And so I think the tip-off is that lack of forgiveness the anger, the grumbling, that's how you tell the difference. The sin of the elder son. The thing that haunts me about this is that in some ways it's harder to distinguish than the sin of the prodigal. You can have two people. They both go to the same church. They read the same passages. They sing the same songs. They take the same Lord's Supper. 
and they are in the same place physically, but their hearts are in vastly different places. And so how do you distinguish between those two? And I think one of the best ways to distinguish is when you can't distinguish on the actions is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I'm sure you can probably think of people who show up every Sunday somewhere, but they have discord, jealousy, rage, rivalries, divisions, factions, envy, drunkenness. And some people may look at this and say, well, I've never had any alcohol. Yeah, there's some that I know who've never had alcohol, but I would not call them sober. That's why I think that tip-off way back at the beginning when it says, he says the Pharisees were grumbling, right? That is an indication of the problem right there. Matthew 23, 23, it's often I've rightly pointed out that Jesus says you, you tithe, you do all these things. And he says, those things were right to do, but there's a problem. He says you've left out something, justice, mercy, faithfulness. But those things sound more like the fruit of the Spirit. There was somebody who told me that, he came to me and he said, you know, he was concerned about something that happened. And he said, I don't, I don't do these things out of fear. And I, I thought about it for half a second and I thought, I agree. And the thing that I looked for was I looked for whether this was a person who was filled with love, joy, peace, patience. And that's what I saw. And so I agree with him. Remember that? Remember what it says? The older son, he says, I have slaved for you. I think it's a tip-off of what's going on here. There's a warped version of obedience, and then there's a right version of obedience. The warped version says, I obey so that I am loved. And the right version says, I am loved, and therefore I obey. One of them will get you the compliance of a slave. But the other gets you the love of a child. I'm going to confess to you that I have a voice in the back of my head. And for years, it always says the same thing. It says, you are not good enough, and you never will be. And I have tried to silence that voice by being, if I can just be good enough, and if I can just know enough, then somehow, somehow I can silence that voice. But the problem is, is that, as C.S. Lewis put it, it's like the more you try to be really good, you realize how bad you are. And you think, well, maybe I'll make a spreadsheet, and I'll list all the things, and I'll check them off. And then you find you still don't measure up, and now you've got a spreadsheet to prove it. But I want to th think about what the hidden assumption is. The hidden assumption is that I will tell that voice, I am good enough. I am worthy. That state is worse than the first. Because, you know, if I get to that point, all that means is I have become the elder son. And if you had asked me a few years ago about that voice, I would have told you that that voice is Satan's voice. Because Satan is the father of lies, and that's a lie. But here's the thing. I've thought about that. 
And the problem with that voice is that it is not wrong. It's the truth of that voice that makes its edge so sharp. I know that I will never silence that voice. But the thing that has changed it for me was when I realized I had to flip the order of love and obedience. That I am loved, and that's why I obey. Because that means, you know, I still may have that voice, and that voice may even be true, but it is also irrelevant. If you have that voice, let me tell you that you can take that weakness and you can turn it into strength. Because with that voice, you can live vicariously through the characters that Jesus meets in the gospel. With that voice, I can understand what it would have felt like to be that prostitute who never gets an invite to anything or anywhere but he said I could come. I could, I could imagine what it would feel like to be that tax collector who wants to approach Jesus but doesn't know how to start that conversation. But he starts the conversation with me and tells me that salvation is here. I could imagine what it would feel like to be that prodigal who stands by when my father defends me against my elder brother and his words, you're not good enough and you never will be. Funny how the gospel message lands a little differently when you realize you're the prodigal. The text tells us that there's going to be people on judgment day who are going to be surprised when God tells them that I never knew you. And I suspect there are going to be people who says, but I did all these things. I checked all the boxes. I served you like a slave. And that's the problem right there. They want credit for years of joyless, loveless, unforgiving drudgery. Matthew 25 in the, the parable of the talents. Something that's always haunted me is the one talent man who refers to the master as a harsh man. I would not have called God harsh. But you know, maybe we shouldn't be listening to the description of the guy who got it wrong in that story. Maybe the fact that he thinks of his master like that is an indication of the problem. When you go back and you read the other servants, they're mentioned in the context of joy. If you've ever worked at places, you know that the best colleagues you've ever had were people who fill their work with joy and a spirit of volunteerism. The question is not whether there's obedience. The question, what is the nature of that obedience? And I think the fruit of the Spirit is how you draw the distinction between those dull gray tones of mindless drudgery and the vibrant colors of a real loving obedience. It's that reordered obedience that caused the poor Macedonians to give while the rich Corinthians hesitated. It makes the giver into a cheerful one 
It takes obedience and adds longing. It takes grammar and turns it into poetry, and it makes obligation into adoration. And it's the thing that makes real forgiveness actually possible. I don't think it's incidental that when Paul has to deal with issues in churches, he also has to deal with a divisive, angry, and unforgiving spirit that is set in. There are two types of obedience. There's one that will carry only what is necessary. And there's another who will carry much more. One asks, how much must I give? And the other asks, how much do you want? I know that I, I do not have all the answers. But this I do know, that I am loved while I figure it all out, as opposed to being loved when I figure it all out. And that has made all the difference. I don't know where you are on your spiritual journey, but if you want to come forward, if we can help,